Last week, our focus was the study of sin, hamartiology, and that's that part of biblical theology uh, that is all about man's condition apart from Christ, all about that, that condition apart from him, outside of him. Uh, it's all about natural, unsaved humanity. For the Christian, it's a reminder of who we were and what we needed. That's why it's important for us uh, as believers in Christ to be reminded of what exactly is the seriousness of sin and how that's the serious condition of all people, um, including us before Christ. We need to remember that. Today, we're covering the study of salvation, soteriology. And this part of theology is all about man's undeserved new condition. Uh, the, the condition apart from Christ, that's deserved, that's earned, and that's what everyone has. And this soteriology is all about a new condition that's completely undeserved in Christ. It's all about supernatural saved man. And for the Christian, this is the reality of who we are right now, today, and forever if you're in Christ who we are, and what we have. That's what soteriology is all about. Hamartiology tells us this is your condition and the prognosis isn't good. That's what hamartiology tells us. Soteriology tells us, but wait, there's more. There's a cure. And that cure is the cross of Christ that we just sang about. The cure is His blood shed for us. And it's the only cure there is. Only cure for man's helpless, hopeless condition. It's in Christ and His work on the cross for us. I hope you know that. I hope you've received that. I hope that defines your life today. If not, then I believe that's why you're here. So that you can come to Christ, come to His cross, receive the cure that He paid for for you with His blood. That was the cost of it. So soteriology, that's what we're going to be looking at today as we continue on in our series, Doctrine for the Day-to-Day. And we're going to be looking at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. That's our primary passage today, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And Paul is writing to the Christians at Ephesus. That's very important to understand. As we look into this passage, that's what Ephesians is. It's a letter to the church at Ephesus. So he's writing to Christians. And this passage in particular, the entire gospel is contained in this passage that we're looking at today. The whole thing from start to finish. The need for it and the content of it, the power of it, it's all contained and expressed in this passage, Ephesians 2 1 through 10. So let's jump in there together. Verse 1. The Apostle Paul says this, and you, speaking again to Christians, remember that, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So Paul doesn't waste any time here. I mean, he drops the bomb right away there in verse 1. He says, you were dead 
in case there was any uh, misunderstanding about your state, your condition before you came to Christ, let me clear it up, Paul says. You weren't okay. You weren't righteous already. You didn't have anything of value to offer God. You were dead. That also means you couldn't help yourself. You couldn't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, as it were. You had nothing to cling to. You had nothing that that was driving you toward God just in yourself. No natural inclination toward Him, towards righteousness. No, you were dead. A dead person doesn't mind their coffin. Right? A dead person doesn't mind the fact that they're closed in a coffin. They they don't mind. They don't they're not aware of that. They're they're dead, right? But if that dead person came to life again, revived somehow while inside of their coffin, they wouldn't be okay, right? They'd instantly panic. And once free from that coffin, they would never want to go near a coffin ever again. I probably, just, I probably described some of your nightmares just now. That fear of being buried alive. That's a common theme, and maybe we can psychoanalyze that later, but no, just, just joking. Now, that's exactly what would happen, though, right? I mean, there'd be panic, there'd be, there'd be fear, there'd be a frantic effort to try to get out, and then once free, they'd never want to go, go to any coffin whatsoever again. And in the same way, when we were spiritually dead, Christian, we didn't care about our trespasses, We didn't care about our sins at all. We didn't care about the fact that we were spiritually dead. We didn't know any differently. That was life for us. That was our reality. But now, but now that we have been freed of that spiritual death, which in Christ we have been. So if you're in Christ here today, you have been freed of that spiritual death. You've been set free from all that was constraining you. You've been set free. And now that we've been freed of that spiritual death and we have new life from Christ, we need to constantly choose to leave that spiritual coffin made from sin behind instead of climbing back into it like we so often do. You you with me on that? Because every time we willingly choose sin and self over righteousness and over holiness and over devotion to Jesus, the One who set us free, it's really like we're just climbing back in that coffin, closing the lid over us finding it comfortable. We've been freed from spiritual death, Christian, so we need to stand and stay in the new life we have. He says you were dead in trespasses, in the trespasses and the sins in which you once walked. And it's it's really important that we focus in on the two words that Paul used here because they mean different things. In trespasses, and sins. The idea behind the word trespasses uh, is crossing a line, challenging God's boundaries. It's like being on someone's private property, you know, when, when we shouldn't be, and ignoring the no trespassing signs that we see. The, 
clear signs that say, no trespassing, don't come here. We ignore that. We go all over the, the line anyway. We cross into that property that we shouldn't be on. Uh, that's the idea behind trespass. It's crossing a line and specifically challenging God's clearly defined boundaries. The idea behind sins that Paul uses here is it's missing the mark, missing the target. The perfect standard of God. That's the mark or the target that we miss. No matter how many times we try to hit it in our strength and in our effort, in our morality, it doesn't matter. We just keep missing it. Romans 3.23, that's what it's all about. For all have sinned, harmatia and or harmatas, all have sinned, missed the mark, missed the target. We fall short of the glory of God, that glorious, perfect standard of righteousness. We talked about that in great deal uh, in detail last week with homardiology. That's the idea behind homardiology. It's everyone missing the mark. So that's the idea behind sins. So trespasses points to man's rebellion. Sins, as Paul uses it here and and everywhere else in Scripture, points to man's failure, their constant failure to hit the mark, to, to nail that target of righteousness and holiness and glory that we never can in ourselves. So man's rebellion, man's failure. It's the one-two punch of man's condition, of the human condition. And it's what separates us from a perfectly holy God. So, I mean, Paul is is really taking great pains to remind uh, the believers there at Ephesus, and by extension all believers who will ever read this, this great, great letter and book of the Bible, that we were in really bad shape. We were, we were not doing well. We were not just going along happily, and we were okay, and, and God just looked at us and just saw so much value and so much goodness, He just had to bring us into His family. No, n- not the case at all. Dead in trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, not the course of God and His holiness, following the prince of the power of the air instead of following the Spirit, Bad, bad situation that we were in. Verse 3, he continues, Ephesians 2, 3, "...among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh," Paul says. So we were, we were following the course of the world. Uh, we were following the, the spirit of disobedience that's working in those who are disobedient, those who are outside of Christ. And he says, we, we lived among them. We all once lived among them. We were just like them. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, by very nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. <laughs> How people can ever come away with the thought that we, after reading the Bible, after reading this, that man was basically good, and that when people are born, they're born basically good, moral creatures. I mean, you have to willingly reject the truth of what is being expressed here. It's the only way you can come away with any other thought than what is clearly expressed here. 
It's a willful rejection. Because this is absolutely universally true of every single human being. This was our lot. This was the condition that we were all in before Christ and His merciful, miraculous work in our lives. You know, when when anyone comes from a troubled or a dark, checkered past, but they're able to come out of it, you know, they're able to experience an entirely different life in the present, it's always a powerful, moving story, isn't it? Whenever you hear about that, uh, about the triumph over... uh, the difficult circumstances, the dark situation that people were in, and, and uh, an entirely new life that is able to be experienced. It's, it's awesome. We love hearing that. That's why people love a good rags-to-riches story. That's why there's so many books and movies that have that kind of story as its central theme, overcoming all the odds. And for those people, when that's true, when they've, they've had a dark past, a, a really rough past, a rough background, when they're reminded of their past, it may be painful, but it makes their present all the more pre- precious and appreciated, doesn't it? I mean, I mean, when you have a rough background and a rough past, but you're able to look back on it and know that it's truly your past, it's not your present, and you're able to see your present as this beautiful, glorious, wonderful thing, this new chapter and this new start. The past serves to make your, pres- your present all the more precious and appreciated. That's exactly how it should be for us as Christians. As Christians, remembering who we were before Christ should make us all the more thankful for who we are because of Christ. If you're here and you're in Christ, He is your Lord and your Savior, your life is in Him, then everything that Paul has just said up to this point no longer defines you. It's no longer true of you. You're not dead anymore. You're not helpless against the course of this world where you just have to follow it. You're not going to just automatically always fulfill the desires of your flesh and just living out those passions like Paul said is, was true of all of us before Christ. Now you have freedom from all that. Now you have power against it. You've been set free. You've been made new. And our past, our past before Christ can and should make our present now in Christ and because of Him all the more precious, all the more powerful to us. Remembering who we were should make the reality of who we are just never ceasing to be a a source of joy and encouragement and strength for us going forward. That's how it should be. And here's Now, thankfully, Paul didn't just stop there. That wasn't the end of this uh, particular part of his letter. He didn't just end it there. He talks about the contrast. That was then. Now he's going to talk in great detail about the now. So our past can and should make our present more precious. Here's what our present is. Here's what our reality is, believer. Verse 4, but... 
God. That right there is one of the most glorious things you could ever hear in all of your life. This is one of the most astounding, amazing statements in all of Scripture when you connect it to what came before it. You were dead, spiritually dead, in your trespasses and sins. You were a rebel. You were a failure. You had no hope. You had no help. You couldn't do anything but obey and fulfill and live out the desires of your flesh and the passions of your your sinful self. You, You had no one to help you get off of the course of the world. You were by very nature children of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him. That's the place of honor. The place we never, ever, ever deserve to be in. But He raised us up with Him, with Christ, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If that doesn't get your fire burning, your wood is really wet. Oh, church, this is everything. This is why no matter what happens around you, in you, to you, matters. It's why why none of that really should rob you of your joy. Because nothing can rob you of this reality if you're in Christ. He says at the beginning of verse 5, when we were dead. Think of how he started this this passage. Verse 1, you were dead. Now he says, when we were dead. So he wants to drive home something, and that's this. That this is when God started loving us. This is when God loved you. When you were dead. He didn't wait until we were lovable. Because that would never happen. In ourselves and by ourselves, we could never be lovable in the sight of God. We could never be worthy of His love. We could never ever reach a point where He could say, okay, that's good enough. I, I can take that and, and I, can, I can love you now because you're good enough to love. That would never ever take place in ourselves and by ourselves. No, when we were dead spiritually, at the height of our rebellion against Him, that's when God started loving us. He didn't wait until we were just lovable enough. He loved us even though we were offensive and putrid to Him as a, as a rotting spiritual corpse. He loved us even when we had nothing of value or benefit whatsoever to offer Him because we were rebels against Him, His very enemy. And yet, He looked at us, His enemies, and He said, I love you, and I love you so much, I'm going to give My Son, whom I love with an eternal love that you couldn't even fathom, I'm going to give Him to you and offer Him up for you as your sacrifice to bring you into My love. That's what He did. That's how He reacted to us when we were dead and when we were rebels. 
when we were dead, he made us alive together with Christ. That means every salvation is a resurrection. Every salvation is a resurrection. And so what that means is every person's story of genuine salvation is a miraculous resurrection story. Every single person. It doesn't matter when or how you came to Christ. It doesn't matter if you were saved as a, as a small child that, that didn't have much life behind them yet. I mean, you were still born a sinner and you were still born a rebel. And so, I mean, even the smallest child is still by nature a child of wrath. They're by nature a rebel before God. So I don't want to minimize the, the sinful state of a child. They're just as much a sinner as someone who's 90. But if a, if a child comes to Christ, I mean, let's just be real about it. It's not like they've had the chance to have this lifelong story of, of all this horrible, sordid activity, right? I mean, you know, they're fairly close to the time of, of being born. But it doesn't matter if that's your story, if you were saved as a young child, or if you spent your whole life completely in, in the most horrible action and activity that you, could, that you could think of. I mean, it doesn't matter what you've done between the time you were born till later in your life. If you were saved later in life, it doesn't matter how you came to Christ. If it's this, if it's this big, huge, dramatic occurrence... You know, this, this powerful display where, where everybody looking in has said, wow, for them to come to Christ, wow, that's a miracle. You've probably heard that. You've probably heard, wow, that, that person, because of all they were and because of all they did, man, them coming to Christ, that was a miracle of miracles. But the thing that I'm trying to stress to you is every single person that has come to Christ, nine or 90, it's a miracle of miracles. And every person's testimony of how they came to Christ is equally miraculous. So don't ever, don't ever think that, that, oh man, I wish I had that kind of a powerful salvation story that I heard from that person over there, from my brother and sister. Man, uh, what would it be like to, to have such an amazing testimony to share? No, if you're in Christ, you have an amazing testimony because Jesus made a dead person alive again. It's just as miraculous you're coming to Christ as the story of Lazarus. Because our condition before God through Jesus, before he, he brought us to life from spiritual death, it's exactly like Lazarus's condition before Jesus arrived at his tomb and called him to come forth from it. Because every single salvation is an occurrence of Jesus coming to the tomb of your life and saying, come forth! You didn't come out of the grave on your own. You couldn't. You were dead. And so if you're here today and you're in Christ, it's because the Savior, the very same one who called Lazarus forth from his grave, called you out of yours. That's the reality of what we're talking about here. That's the reality of your salvation. That's what it means to be saved. And what is the purpose behind this 
amazing act of God, this amazing grace? What's the purpose behind it? Paul tells us in verse 7. He did all that, all that incredible work and and undeserved grace, kindness, mercy, love, all of that was for this purpose. Verse 7. So that in the coming ages, He, God, this is why He did it. So that in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, everybody that that goes forward and looks in and looks on us, and, and every age they would be able to see that there is a God full of grace and full of kindness. And the Christian is the example of that. We're what shouts the grace of God. We're what, we're what shines the great light on His kindness. So that nobody can ever say, God isn't gracious. God isn't kind. He's just this vengeful, wrathful God. No, He put the wrath that should have been ours for our sin on His Son so that He could pour out His grace on us. That's why He did it. Verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Verse 9, Not a result of works so that no one may boast. See, verses 8 and 9, this is why we can be secure in our salvation. This is why. This is what it, it all comes back to. It's not from us. That's why we can be secure in our salvation. It's not from us. It doesn't depend on us. It's not performance-driven on either side of the coin. In other words, by, by me not performing good enough isn't going to keep me from salvation or, or somehow rob me of my salvation when I fail to perform to the level of, of morality that is needed. It's not going to take away my salvation because it's not tied to that. Neither is just excellent conduct and all this good and, and high morality. That's not going to make you any more saved. See, our, our salvation, the grace that we have is, is grace. It's, it's undeserved on both sides. You can't earn it. can't do enough good to receive it. And you can't do such so much good that it just kind of ups it or increases the level of it. It's not dependent at all on our performance. Either way. Can't be good enough, can't be bad enough. <laughs> it's entirely dependent on the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice of our Savior. That's what our entire salvation rests on. It means we, we can't look to anything else. For our salvation. It's entirely dependent on the perfect and all-sufficient sacrifice of our Savior. And it's dependent on the power of God to apply it and to keep it. That's why, Christian, if you're here today, I just want to tell you and I want you to hear from me very clearly, you can and should be secure in your salvation. And the reason for it is because it's just not up to you. It's not up to me. It's not dependent on us. On anything we do or don't do. It's all because of what God did through Christ. It's because of His power to apply it to our lives by the Holy Spirit. We've already talked about that in this series. 
And it's his power that keeps it and keeps us in it. It's not performance-driven. John 6, and verse 63, Jesus says this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. See, that's him keeping us saved. Verse 63, he says, It is the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. See, it's, it's totally a work of God. Romans 8, verse 35, and also verses 37 to 39, Paul says this, Who, se- who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he gives quite a list. Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? I mean, that's a pretty extensive list of things that we don't like, right? Those are things that none of us like. Those aren't happy, good things. Those are perilous things. Those are things we want to try to avoid. Those are things that we worry about. Those are big deals for us. All of that. He says, so will any of that, does any of that have the ability, the power to separate us, to remove us from the love of God in and through the Lord Jesus Christ? He gives the answer, verses 37 through 39. No! No! Not going to happen. In all these things, all those things, those terrible, heavy, serious, and significant things that Paul just wrote about there. No, in all those things, or against all those things, we are more than conquerors. In the Greek, what Paul used to say that, that literally means super conquerors. Super conquerors. Through Him who loved us. Then he he continues, verse 38, for I am sure, I'm absolutely convinced, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, which is always what scares us, the unknown of the things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, and that includes yourself, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You're completely secure in your salvation because it's just not up to you. It's not about you. It's about God. We didn't save ourselves. I think we we will all agree on that. We didn't save ourselves. And here's the really, really good news. We don't keep ourselves saved. We didn't save ourselves, and we don't keep ourselves saved. It's all God, start to finish. All Him. There's where your security is, believer, and there alone. He wraps up this wonderful, powerful passage in verse 10. And he says this, Paul writing, he says, For we the believers, all who are in Christ. For we are His workmanship. That's literally, in the Greek that this was written in, poema. Poema. And there's two implications and applications of this word. 
One is a beautiful poem, just an amazing, beautiful poem that is written. The other is a masterpiece work of art. So, by Paul saying, we who are in Christ are God's workmanship, his poema, we are God's beautiful poem, and it's a love poem, and we are his masterpiece, a work of of art. Remember remember what we were before Christ? We were dead. I mean just putrid, offensive to him, a rebel against him. But now in Christ and because of him, we've been made alive, we've been seated with him in the heavenlies, and we have been made this beautiful poem or a beautiful work of art. How does that happen all and only in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand, way before our salvation. God prepared these good works that we were created in Christ Jesus for because that was the only way we could do good by being created anew in Christ. And He prepared all that beforehand for us that we should walk in them. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Church, this is just as much a part of God's predestined plan for believers as anything else is. We were predestined for good works. We were predestined for conformity to Christ. That we would be like Him and that we would live for Him. So, we we can't miss the fact that good works, works of good, righteousness, are very important, vital for the Christian. That's not what makes us a Christian, though. We've got to get the order right. See, a, a Christian's good works are validation of their profession. A Christian's good works our validation of their profession. If you have made a profession of faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've said, yes, I believe in Jesus, He's my Savior and my Lord, I've given Him my life, I've committed myself to Him, then you've got to look at the fruit to see if that was a a genuine profession. Because a a Christian's good works after their salvation is going to validate that, that profession of faith. It's just like in James 2 where James says, I will show you my faith by my works. He says, you, you want to you talk about faith apart from works? I'm going to show you or, or prove the genuineness of my faith by my works. He, he goes on in James 2 and he says, faith without works is useless and dead. You see, we don't do good to earn salvation. Don't ever think that's the case. There would never be enough good we could do. We don't do good to earn salvation. We do good as an expression of our salvation. We live righteously in response to our rescue. Have you been rescued by the Lord Jesus Christ? Can you say that's true of you today? Have you been rescued by Him? then you should go forth in righteousness. You should walk righteously. 
But it's not ever to make God like you. It's not ever so that, that God will somehow give you His favor, that, so He'll love you more. That will never happen, and that never needs to happen. The moment you are in Christ and made new in Him, you are fully loved, fully accepted, fully favored forever. And so the righteousness that you and I need to walk in, that we choose and that we pursue, it's all in response to that rescue. We've got to get that right. We've got to get that order right. And truly, that is the only fitting response. When we, when we consider all that has been done for us, when we consider all that we have, that we did not have, when we consider all we are compared to who we were, I mean, is there any other response that makes sense than to live our lives for the one who gave his life for us to make us alive in him? No, there's no other response. No other response. So that's what I want to leave with you and what I want to challenge you with. Christian, go forward in pursuit of righteousness, but not in some twisted effort to make yourself more presentable to God. No, go forward in righteousness in response to Him rescuing you the way that He did. You agree with that? Is that what you want? I hope so. I hope that's your desire. It needs to be. And uh, I'm going to just close now and, and pray for us along those lines. Because just as we couldn't save ourselves, we can't keep ourselves even walking in that righteous walk. We're just powerless to do it. But thankfully, we have the, all the power we need in the person of the Holy Spirit. Amen? So let's pray and ask for His empowerment to do exactly this. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for how clear it is. I thank You for how powerful it is. I thank You for how relevant it is to our lives. I thank You that though we were dead in Christ and because of Him, through Him, you made us alive with Him. And you didn't just make us alive, you seated us with Him in the place of honor in the heavenlies. And you gave us everything we need for a life of godliness, for a life of righteousness. And you gave us your Spirit to empower us to do that, to, to help us to walk righteously, to live righteously. Thank you that we never have to try to earn or receive more of your favor, more of your love. We have all of that that we would ever need forever. Help us, please, to do good as an expression of the salvation that we have. Help us to live righteously in response to your rescue. And help us to depend on the power of your Spirit to do that because that is the only way we can. We just can't do it on our own. Thank you for giving us all the power we need, now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.